All right, well, let's go ahead, please, and turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. For those of you that are new, we are in the process of undergoing a series called For the Common Good. We're looking at the Holy Spirit, and in particular, the spiritual gifts, and I'll explain more on that in a moment, but that's really where we are and where we have been for the last three weeks, and will be for this week and then next week, and then we'll be going into the book of Acts which we're really excited about, which will probably be about 16 weeks. We call it the Unstoppable Gospel, and we'll just be looking at following on from John then. How did the Gospel go forward around the world? But today, for the common good, let's read and refresh ourselves in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 11. I'm not going to exegete it. We've been covering much of it over the last few weeks. But nonetheless, let's start here by being addressed by the Lord through, this, through these verses. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers... I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is a Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, But it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Let's pray. Well, Lord, how glorious it is to gather once again around your word, not over your word, but under your word, allowing it to address us and speak to our souls. And Lord, would you do that once again today? Lord, as we gather around this difficult and often challenging and confusing topic of the spiritual gifts, Lord, would you illuminate these things in our hearts? Would we see them for what they really are? Would we delight in them for what they really are? And would all attention then, as is true of all spiritual gifts, go on to you? So Lord, help us see you in the midst of this preach, in the midst of these words. Would you become big in our eyes? In Jesus' name, amen. In a growing up for me, in a very charismatic church, which is really what I grew up in between naught and 18, I was well acquainted with what we would commonly think of as the spiritual gifts, or the more, if you were, supernatural spiritual gifts. So prophecy, tongues, and healing. And I saw them all the time. And sometimes that was great and really helpful, and other times it was maybe not so helpful. So prophecy, I saw what we described last week as prophecy. I saw that and worked out in the local church, really just that human report of divine revelation. It was great, but it was also not so great sometimes and not so helpful because at different times we'd have people in the church, the church is about 50 people, similar to the size of Corinth, that would be about 50 people. And at some points during the worship, somebody would just stand up and start prophesying over individuals and then would go around each individual, and have a prophetic word for each individual. And all of them would be strong. They'd be, thus saith the Lord, this is what you're going to do, and thus saith the Lord what you're going to do. And you think, well, that's, you know, different. And the whole meeting would then come to a stop and we'd just be watching this individual. And I grew up in that. Tongues, I saw those operated in. I saw people speak in tongues. And sometimes that was great. I saw people speaking tongues, and I saw it in a controlled way then be interpreted. And we observed that as a church and enjoyed that as a church. But at other times, it was maybe not so helpful as we would have singing in tongues for about half an hour. You know, I remember going to Zambia once on a missions trip and all they did was sing in tongues for hours. And you'd say, why are you speaking tongues? And they're like, well, it just helps us get just psyched up. And it gets the antennae in the air. And you think, ah, uh, antennae, which, which verse is that? that that's new. Uh, um, uh, but there was just this idea that if we sing in tongues or speak in tongues, or, you know, God just does something supernaturally. Oh, all right. That was maybe not so helpful. I also saw healing. That was always, in some ways, helpful because when people are prayed for and people get healed, that can be life-changing. You know, that can re- you 
you come aware that God is in this place. And I've seen people healed with my own eyes. I've experienced people that are being prayed for actually get healed, which is amazing. But I've also experienced that in a maybe unhelpful way, in the sort of name it and claim it way. So you'd have people with a streaming of cold. Thus saith the Lord, be gone cold. But I think I've still got a cold. And, no, you haven't. It is gone. But I can feel the bogeys. It's, it's, it's there and it's streaming um, down my face. And No, you're seeing nothing. Get behind me, Satan. You're like, really? But I feel, still feel sick. Um, I remember this one time when somebody was prayed for with a bad back. And, and the minister just said, well, well, just stand up and praise God. And as they tried to stand up, their back went again. And they're like, oh, that's awkward. And they shuffled off the stage. And you think, yeah, I'm not quite sure. And that was quite good. And you say to folk, well, why did they not get healed? Oh, they lacked faith. Like, really? Oh. So it's all about us. Oh, yes, it's about our faith. Well, that's unhelpful. That's really unhelpful. So growing up in a very charismatic church, I saw prophecy in tongues and healing Often well, sometimes not so helpful, but I came very well acquainted with them. And to be honest, I'm very grateful for my upbringing. I'm very grateful that the Lord provided me with that type of education growing up. Because for me, in particular, the idea that God is near was never a challenge. I saw that every week. There was always just that sense that the Lord is here and there was an expectation that he can move in our midst when we gather as a local church. And the idea then that God can do anything was never hard for me to get my head around because I didn't just read that in a book. I saw that demonstrated regularly. People prophesying with things that you think, you can't have known that. So what's that all about? People being prayed for and being healed and actually healed and you think, well, what is that all about? So just this idea that God is near and God can do anything, was not hard for me. And yet I think it would be fair to say that when I left home at 18, particularly on this issue, the spiritual gifts, I was theologically ignorant. I didn't have a clue what the Bible taught on these things. I just experienced some stuff. And because I experienced some stuff, you just assume that everything you believe on that stuff is correct and right. And so I remember as I got older, as a teenager, I didn't even care that I was theologically ignorant because the good thing about being ignorant is you don't even realise. But as I got older, I remember chatting to different folk in church and saying, you know, how does this work then? How does prophecy and tongues and, and healing actually work biblically defined? And at that point, I was still in a very charismatic church and, and no one really knew because they were just like me. They had grown up in it and they hadn't really studied it. It was just experiential. And so I remember talking to some people that were evangelical and you'd say, well, you know, tell me from your perspective, because you seem to really understand the Bible, about spiritual gifts. And they wouldn't know either. They would just know them as naughty words. And so what I came to realise is nobody seemed to really know. There was a theological ignorance, different experiences, but often theological ignorance on both sides of the coin. And it was really that theological ignorance that really birthed my heart, as I said a few weeks ago, for this course. Because 1 Corinthians 12 verse 1, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. And I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want us to go on experience that we may have had if we've grown up in a charismatic church, or non-experience that we may have had in an evangelical church, and just say, well, that's the way it is. I want us to sit under God's word as a local church and I I don't want us to be uninformed. I want us to be equipped. I want us to be encouraged. I want us to be educated on these things. Because if these things are for real, which I believe they are, then they're gifts given to us by the one who sent his son to die in our place. And so we can't just ignore them as if they're no big deal. These These are gifts to be treasured. Gifts to be used, gifts to be operated, things that we want to enjoy and benefit from for the common good in our local church. And so last week I did prophecy, and thank you so much for your feedback on that. It's been so helpful, and I'm so encouraged that, that it's blessed you and is blessing you so far in your, life, in your life groups as you're talking about it. Today I want to talk about tongues and healing. And apparently from a number of our life group leaders, they're like, oh, this is the one they're waiting for. So tongues... And healing today is the title of this message. That's the one that we're going to be talking about. Tongues and healing today. And let's start with tongues. For both tongues and healing, I've got three questions for each, which will help us, I think, hopefully, unpack what on earth these are and how they should operate in a local church as biblically defined. So tongues, first of all, what is the gift of tongues? We see it here in verse 10. He says, to another, various kinds of tongues. Something given to us by the Lord. So what 
is the gift of tongues? Question one. Well, Wayne Grudem, I think, a very helpful definition on this. He says, speaking in tongues is prayer and praise towards God, spoken in syllables, not understood by the speaker. So speaking in tongues is prayer or praise towards God, spoken in syllables, not understood by the speaker. So what we have here is a gift. If, I, if, the, if it really was a gift on our stage and I brought it towards you and unwrapped it, what you'd see in that gift is this is a gift that is a heavenly language. It's spoken as prayer or praise towards God and it's not understood by the speaker. It's not understood by the person who's actually speaking this heavenly language. And we see that in a couple of places. In 1 Corinthians 14 verse 2. Look there with me if you've got your Bibles because I want to prove it to you that I'm not making it up. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 2, it says, For no one, oh, sorry, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. So you get this idea that this is a tongue, this is a gift that is not spoken to men, it's spoken to God. It's prayer and praise, and it's prayer or praise that is mysteries. I.e. the person doesn't understand them. They're mysteries before themselves as they're saying these things. In verse 14 then of chapter 14, he says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So once again, we see this emphasis on prayer and praise towards God. It's aimed towards the Lord, but it's mysterious. So my brain doesn't really get it. My heart, you know, is engaged, but my brain doesn't understand because it's a heavenly language that's not understood by the speaker. Now, This gift of tongues, it's important to understand that this gift of tongues is different to that which is seen in Acts chapter 2, which is often commented on as, oh, that must be the gift of tongues. No, it's very different. Acts chapter 2, I think, was unique in redemptive history and wonderful and without doubt a gift, but it's not the gift of tongues that is taught about here in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. So in Acts chapter 2, let me set the scene. We'll look at it in a few more weeks when, when we go through Acts. But it's the day of Pentecost. The disciples have been in the upper room God pours out his spirit as promised and all the disciples go running out onto the streets and the Bible says that they're proclaiming the glories of God and prophesying and in verse 4 of chapter 2 and they're speaking in other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance. That is way cool. I like that verse. You know, you just think that would be amazing. You've waited as a group of people for the Lord to send his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit arrives We have a growing confidence as a church. We run out onto the streets and we start prophesying, telling of the glories of the Lord and speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So they must have spoken tongues. No, not in terms of what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Because in Acts chapter 2, there are thousands of people in Jerusalem. It talks there about how there is every nation under heaven there. Now, I'm sure that's hyperbole, so it's not necessarily that every nation, but what he's trying to get over is there are loads of different languages going on here. It is so cosmopolitan at this time of year. Everybody is around and everybody speaks different languages. And in verses 6 through 11, then Luke helps us see that each one of those different languages was hearing these Jewish disciples speaking to them the mighty works of God in their own tongues. That's amazing. So the disciples are spilling onto the streets. They are basically given the gift of language. It would be like us rocking up into Sydney Town Centre and God gives us Cantonese and Nigerian and German and everything else and we just start declaring the mighty works of the Lord. People aren't saved by that. People are saved by Peter's preaching on the gospel. But they're inquisitive because they're starting to hear the mighty works of God proclaimed by people that didn't know the language in the first place. That is really, really cool. But not speaking in tongues like it talks about here in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Because here in 14, it says, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men. And as they speak, they utters mysteries. So this isn't something that we should be looking to experience at Sovereign Grace. And then somebody comes up and they just give a tongue. And then I say, well, has anybody got an interpretation? And they just happen to be speaking Arabian. And there's an Arab here, so that's great. It's not talking about that. These are mysteries. They're mysteries that can't be just given off in another language. So what is a gift of tongues? Well, it's a heavenly language spoken in prayer or praise towards God and not understood by the speaker. So it is speaking in tongues as a prayer or praise towards God spoken in syllables not understood by the actual person given them. Now here's the question I think that we want to wrestle with. It's certainly the one that, that I'm asking. 
What possible good could that be? Why would God want to give you, through the Spirit, a language which you don't understand, you can't, you know, you haven't got a clue what you're saying. Why would God want to do that? You know, I know he loves us, but, but is that just for a giggle or something? I mean, what does he actually want to do? What is the point of him giving us this gift? It's a heavenly language, but I don't understand it. And it's prayer, prayer or praise, but I could just pray or praise. So why do I need this? Why do I need this? How is this gift helpful? Well, quite clearly, the gift of tongues, according to Paul, is something to be desired. It's something to be wanted. So before we even look at what, what, what do you mean, we have to understand Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, is saying this is really good. And so 1 Corinthians 14 verse 18, he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. That's a massive statement. That is full on. Because I know people can say, you know what, well, I just think speaking in tongues, that's just weird. It's like speaking in tongues and, you know, drinking poison and messing about with serpents. They're probably on a level par. And you think, well, okay, if we're going to go with that, then the Apostle Paul is a nut job. Because he spoke in tongues more than all of you. And this is Corinth here. This is a, this is a church that is like full-on charismatic. There is speaking in tongues going on all over the place. They're gathering together and they're, just, they're clearly having hours of just, you know... Suazaki banana backwards for ages. They're giving it absolutely everything for Jesus. No one's got a clue what's going on. And Paul wrote up and said, oh, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. What? Paul? The theologian? The man who really understands? The one who is proud in the right sense of his mind and the way he can articulate? Yep. Paul. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. And in 14 verse 5, he says, now I want you all to speak in tongues. There's this sense where he's saying, listen guys, this is a really good gift. I, I would that you could all speak in tongues. Now, we have to be careful there, because he also says in chapter 7, I would that you're all single. But he doesn't actually mean, well, therefore stay single. He's just saying, no, this is a good gift. I speak it more than any of you, and, and I'd like you to have this gift, because it's great. I would that you all speak in tongues. But that still leaves us with the question, Apostle Paul, as to why. Why are you so concerned about us having this gift? Well, the answer comes very distinctly, very clearly in chapter 14, verse 4a. He says, The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. That's the fruit of this gift. The one who has this gift is able to operate in this gift in a way that it edifies themselves. They're built up as they use this gift for the glory of the Lord. And so my dad, for example, has this gift. And so I grew up um, hearing this gift all the time. Um, and it is distinct. <coughs> and believe me, it's not <coughs> a language that we're well acquainted with. It's, it, it's different. And I remember talking to my dad numerous times saying, Dad, why do you do this? Why do you, you know, I can hear you in your office speaking in tongues or singing in tongues. Why? And he would just say, well, you know what, it edifies me. And clearly it did, you know, it built him up, it, it helped him. I was speaking to somebody in this church just a few days ago who, who has the gift of tongues and they were just saying how, you know, they speak in tongues and how it gives them a peace. They meet with the Lord in that regard, in their home, as they're speaking tongues, and they find it edifying in a way it gives them peace. And I think that's great. And so for those of us that don't have the gift of tongues, you know, for us, I think we go to the God's Word, we go to books, we go to preaching, we go to worship, we go to prayer, and we go after those things because it edifies us, right? It builds us up. We become more and more aware of who God is and how great He is. That's great. But the Holy Spirit seems to give a gift to some where He says, I'm going to give you a gift well, you haven't even got to do all those things. You should do all those things, but as well as those things, I'm going to give you a gift. By just exercising this gift, you're going to feel the same thing. You're going to feel a peace. You're going to feel edified. You're going to feel strengthened in your soul through this gift. So what possible good could it be? Why could God why give this gift to some individuals? Well, he gives it so that they can build themselves up. And you could say, well, is that not just selfish? Not according to Paul. Is reading your Bible selfish? Is prayer selfish? Is singing songs selfish? 
Well, no, well, they help edify me so that I can serve the Lord more. What, you mean for the common good? Yes. Amen. There's the point. He gives us a gift so we can be edified by it, so we can go on and serve him in the common good type of sense. So how then can we best summarise this gift of tongues? Putting that all together, um, I'll try, which is my third question. How can we best summarise this gift of tongues? Well, here's a couple of headlines that I want you to know because I don't want to spend loads and loads of time with this. I want to move on to healing. But here's the headlines of tongues. Tongues is a gift of grace. It is a grace gift. It is charismata. Charis, grace, mata, gift. That's what it talks about in verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It's given as an expression of God's grace. So it is not given as a sign of God's special love towards you or special affection towards you. It's not a reward for your heightened zeal, the maturity in Christ. It's just a grace gift. So did you earn it? No. It was a grace gift. The key word is grace. Undeserved. You haven't earned it. So where it says in chapter 12, verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills, you're just aware this is the Holy Spirit doing this. Does he think, oh, you have done, oh my goodness, you love Jesus so much, have the gift of tongues. No. They're just gifts of grace for the church. So if they're gifts of grace then, does that mean that they're given to all? No. No, absolutely not. Tongues are not given to all. And you must understand this. Because depending on your background, if, you're, if you've been in a very Pentecostal background, a charismatic background, you may think that they are given to all and that they are a sign of the Holy Spirit descending on you. I don't believe that's true. I think that is a poor reading of Acts, which we'll look at as we start going through that. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 11, we see that tongues are a part of a list. They're just some of many. In verses 29 through 30 then, of chapter 12, so for anybody that thinks that everybody has tongues, these are the take-home verses. Chapter 12, verse 29 and 30, he says, Are we all apostles? Are Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? His point is, no. No, not everybody does all those things. They're different. The Holy Spirit gives to each one as he wills. They're not the sign. And so I grew up more Pentecostal thinking that baptism in the Spirit happened in some way as a secondary event till you become a Christian and then you're baptised in the Spirit and that's when you're really a Christian. And so growing up, you know, if I'd met you when I was 13 and I would say to you, you know, you've been baptised in the Spirit and you'd go, what do you mean? I'd be like, oh dear, We've got one here. They're only half a Christian. You know, it's like they're kind of in, but you're not experiencing anything really of the Lord. And oh my gosh, we need to pray with you. And as I pray with you passionately, I'm waiting for you to speak in tongues. And if you speak in tongues, we're moving on. If you don't speak in tongues, it's going to be a long day. Because, you know, we need to make sure you speak in tongues. Now, where do Pentecostals and Charismatics get that from? We get that incorrectly from Acts. So we take Acts, which is historical, as normative. And so in the book of Acts, you get this whole premise of Pentecost comes on the disciples and they start speaking in tongues, which we see in different ways in different times. But then the whole point of Acts in part, which I don't want to start preaching Acts, but the whole point is it's redemptive history. So God has promised the Holy Spirit and we see how salvation is going to come to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And then lo and behold, in Acts... The Holy Spirit comes to Jerusalem, then it comes to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And how do you know it's come each time? Because each one, in effect, experiences their own Pentecost. Sometimes they speak in tongues, sometimes they don't. But Pentecostals have taken that historical narrative, which is amazing, and said, therefore, that's what we should see in our individual lives all the time. So did you become a Christian? Great. Oh, did you receive the Spirit? No, I don't think so. Oh my gosh, let's pray over you. No. The Apostle Paul, I think, would be like, no. Because in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that when you become a Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. Oh, so you receive the Holy Spirit when you become a Christian. Yes. So why are we praying afterwards to receive the Holy Spirit? I think Paul would be going, I don't really know. 
But he does go on in chapter 5, though, and say, but be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. So we're not talking about baptism of the Spirit. What we're talking about is when you become a Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing your inheritance. Amen. You must now walk in the Spirit and the power of the Spirit for the glory of the Lord. But be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Come under his sway. Cry out to God for grace in your life. Cry out to God that you may receive more and more gifts. Cry out to God that as you sing and pray, you may encounter God in greater ways through the Spirit, which we call being filled with the Spirit. Not just once, but time and time and time again. Which is why in chapter 5 it is in the present continuous sense. So tongues are a gift from God, but they're not necessarily given to all. They're not a sign that you've received the Spirit. The sign that you've received the Spirit, listen flat out, the sign that you received the Spirit is that you declare Jesus Christ is your Lord. That's the sign that you receive the Spirit. That's it. We're done. But then we do want to go on being filled with the Spirit and we do want to pursue gifts, but we're talking about something different now. We're not talking about whether you're a Christian or not. We're talking about something different. So, if tongues aren't given to all, which I don't believe they are, why should we pursue them? Well, we should pursue them because they are nonetheless a great gift. And Paul makes that clear, which is why he says, listen, I, I would that you speak in tongues. I, I want you all to speak in tongues. This is great. It will help you. It will edify you through the gifts of tongues. Sure, you won't be able to understand what you're saying, but I'd love you to have it because as you do this, you'll feel a peace and a strength and an edification. So it's something you should pursue. It's great. As a Corinthians, I speak in tongues more than all of you. Does everybody have it? No. Not everybody has singleness either, but I would that you would. It's great. It's useful. You know what's also important about tongues, though? Let me just finish on this point with regard to tongues. If used publicly, it must be interpreted. It must be. So I grew up singing in tongues with a congregation regularly. And my worst fear is that one of my unbelieving friends might come. Because you just think, please, Jesus, don't bring them here. You know, this is going to be a problem. And Paul would agree with me on that, which is what he points out in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 27 through 28. Sorry, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 27 to 28. This is what he says. He says, If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself. And to God. So, Paul, is it okay if we all gather together as a whole church with unbelievers present and sing in tongues? Uh, no, because that's going to probably be more than two or three of you, and it's going to be tricky to interpret it all. Okay, um, so can we just all rock up to church and just speak in tongues for ages? No, no, no. If anybody speaks in tongues, it's only two or three, and it's got to be interpreted. Well, Paul, why? Why are you uptight about that? Why do you want that? Well, he gives us three reasons in chapter 14 is why that is. First of all, he's aware that the gift of tongues is not for everybody. And so he doesn't want to cause in the Corinthian church, which is exactly what's happening, more and more angst between them. Some are speaking tongues, some can't. And the ones that can are flaunting it as the gift. It's a bit of a ha-ha. So you arrive as a church... And some are speaking in tongues and the rest are like, oh, I can't even do that. This is a bit gutting. And, and he's saying, look, this is ridiculous. You're going to cause divisions between you in the way you're operating in this gift. Secondarily, as you speak in tongues or sing in tongues publicly and the unbelievers present, you're going to, in effect, bring judgment on them, which is why he quotes Isaiah 28. He's referring back to the Old Testament, how the gift of different languages was in part a judgment on them. And he's saying, in part, people are coming into your context as a church, and in part, you're speaking judgment and confusion on them. I don't want that for people. I want them to come into your church and meet God. I don't want them to meet his wrath and confusion and judgment. But more than anything, he makes it very, very clear in verse 23. This is exactly why I don't want you to speak in tongues and not have it interpreted. He says, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Yes, they will. Which is why I never wanted an unbeliever ever to come to my church. Because they will come in and think, you are off your rocker. And Paul says, yes, they will. So don't do it. 
See, Paul is clear then. If you want to speak in tongues publicly, that's okay. In verse 39, he says, So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. He's saying, I'm not going to tell you, Corinth, that you cannot when you gather. I'm not going to say you can't, but what I am going to say is it better only be two or if at most three. That's kind of his tone. And it better be interpreted. Because if it's not, they're going to think you're mad. Unbelievers are going to come in and they're not going to be helped. They're not going to be helped in any way. They're going to think you are out of your minds. And so we need to make room for the gift of tongues. Paul makes room for the gift of tongues, but only if it is interpreted. And the interesting thing on all of that anyway is Paul's emphasis throughout the whole of 12, 13 and 14 without doubt is not on tongues, it's about prophecy. And so if you're actually reading it and you didn't have any background in church, you would say, you know what, it's quite clear that Paul really wants us to prophesy. That's the thing, as this church gathers, that he would say, you know, I really want you to do this. And so he says, listen, to be honest with you guys, I would rather you use five words that are intelligible than 10,000 of your heavenly language that people don't understand. I'd rather you say five words that people can understand and be helped by than 10,000. That's 2,001 prophecy odds. You know what I'm saying? He really wants you to undergo and enjoy that gift. So are tongues a gift? Yes, they're a gift of grace. Are they given to all? No, I don't believe they are. Should they be pursued? Yes. But if they become public, they must be interpreted. And even then, the emphasis is on prophecy. But as a private gift that edifies, we should pursue it. Praise God. If the Lord gives us that gift and you receive it, and I know some of you have it, and he blesses you in that way, and you say, Lord, will you give me the gift of tongues? I want to be able to be strengthened in my soul as I walk with you. If he gives you that, great. That's wonderful. We want that. We want to pursue that. But publicly, it must be, it must be interpreted. And so if you're from a more Pentecostal or charismatic background, which is my background, I'm aware that in our background there is a balloon on tongues the size of King Kong. And I'm aware, if you've been listening carefully, I've just popped it, unashamedly, because I think it has been hyped up and hyped up as the gift. That's not in the Bible. That's something we've taken on in our tradition, and partly because of a reading, incorrect reading of Acts that we've then made normative in every church. That's not the case. It's, it's one of the gifts, one of many gifts. And if anything, I think the emphasis publicly would be on prophecy. Paul would say, you know, desire the gifts, but especially that you might prophesy. But if you're from an evangelical background and you've never heard of tongues, I hope in some ways that demystifies it a bit for you because it's nothing to be freaked out about. I know because of my background it can freak some of you guys out, But when you see it biblically, it's just like, okay, so we're talking about a private gift on the whole that we do by ourselves to edify ourselves. And it's a language we won't understand, but God does give it to some. And Paul himself, one of our historical heroes, used it more than any of us. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. All right, healing. Let's move on. Healing. What is healing all about? How? How does that work? And we see it in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 9. He says, to another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. And you know, the reason why I mentioned this gift, and I want to pause on this gift, I think it's such an important topic to highlight, because I think it's often an emotive topic, isn't it? Unlike tongues, where we just think, yeah, that's a bit confusing. Healing, healing is different. Healing's emotive. Because often when we're engaging with the idea of healing, it's because we're sick. Or a friend is sick. Or a family member is sick. And it engages our emotions. And it engages our emotions tenfold because often it can also be not only emotive in topic, but it can be confusing, can't it? And so am I meant to, when I'm sick or my family member's sick, say, thus saith the Lord, stand? Is that what I'm meant to do? Because I kind of see that a bit in Acts. Is, is that what I, I'm meant to play out? Am I meant to name it and claim it? You will be well. Stand. Oh, but I think my back still hurts. And, well, stand anyway. You know, is that what we're meant to do? And, or are we meant to not pray at all? And just say, well, God's sovereign. I'm reformed. God's sovereign. We just rely on him. Well, shall we pray for them? No, not really, no. We just trust. 
So how does the gift of healing operate? Oh, it doesn't. God might supernaturally step in somehow. But we don't want to pray. Okay. All right. It's a confusing topic. So it's an emotive topic and it's a confusing topic. See, what there can be no doubt on is when Jesus walked the earth, healings took place, didn't they? So in John chapter 4, we have the royal official's son. This son has got a fever. He is, in fact, dying. And so this official comes to Jesus and says, please heal my son. I want him to be healed. And Jesus himself says, go and your son will live. And that's exactly what happened. Exactly with the way take the, the time Jesus said that, the son wasn't healed and he lived. John chapter 5, we interact with an invalid for 38 years. Jesus is at the pool of Bethesda. And he says to this guy, get up, take your bed and walk. This man has been an invalid for 38 years and he gets up and he stands up and he walks. I mean, I would love to see that. In John chapter 9, a man born blind, he has never seen a thing. Jesus spits on the ground, creates a mud pack, sticks it in his eyes, starts rubbing it in, tells him to go and wash it off. And by the time he's washed it off, he can see. And then we come to John 11, the raising of Lazarus. Been dead for four days. And Jesus himself says, Lazarus, come forth. And this dude comes hopping out. He's, he's risen again. He has been resuscitated by the Lord. When Jesus Christ walked the earth, healing without doubt was a factor and took place. We see it. But the question for us, I think, the first of three on this topic, is but does God then heal today? For sure, I don't think there's anyone who's in the room that would say, well, when Jesus walked the earth, he, he didn't heal people. No, he did. The question is, does he heal today? And so turn with me to Acts chapter 9. An important part of scripture that I think can be helpful on this. Acts chapter 9, and I just want to read from verse 32 through to the end of 43. Listen, listen to this. It says, Now as Peter went here and there among them, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralysed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. You know, there are many things about that passage that are really cool. And when we go through the series on Acts, you're going to enjoy it. There's some really cool things that we see in Acts, as as well as the unstoppable gospel goes forward and and how that works and so on and so forth. But the overarching thing that I want you to grasp from that text that we just read is simply this. Does God heal today? Does the gift of healing still operate after Jesus Christ ascending to the right hand of the Father? Yes, yes. It totally and utterly does. Quite clearly it does. Peter was not able in his humanity to go on and heal people. Peter was not Jesus. He was a disciple of Jesus. And when he prayed for people on some occasions, they were healed. They clearly, on some one occasion, came back to life. And on another occasion, a guy who's been bedridden for eight years, he prays with him and this guy stands up and starts to walk around the place. And Paul then, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, lists as part of the spiritual gifts, the gifts of healings. 
And so folks, I want to encourage you, is healing for today? Yes. And if we say, well, it's not, then we have to say, well, all the spiritual gifts aren't then. Take them all away. Because they were just for the apostles. And we get that because we get a bit nervous about it more than anything else. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that. So does God heal today? Yes, he does. And that should give us great hope and great joy and great faith in the right sense of of seeing healings in the midst of Sovereign Grace Church. Because he does and can heal today. And so should we assume the same power and intensity and degree as the apostles? No, I don't think so. You know, chapter 12, verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. What does that mean? Well, as he wills, therefore, I'm just going to be just like Peter, and as the light comes on me, if we get the vision, you know, the light from behind, if you're real, just walk in my shadow. And you, no, it doesn't say that. It just says, no, it says he wills. It's, he might give you that type of strength to give, but he might not too. We can't manipulate him as if, well, it should look just like that for everybody then. No, that's not the case. Should we then assume the same power and intensity degree and degree as the apostles? No, I don't think so. But what we should assume is that God still heals today. That he can. That he's able to do that. And that he's able to do that in our midst. Now the second question though that I think is part of the emotive response is well then does God always heal today? If it's available today, does he, does he always heal? heal today. If we pray in the right way, will he heal? Without doubt. Always. The answer, honest answer, no. He doesn't. Can he heal today? Yes. Does he heal today? Yes. Does he always heal today? No, I don't think we can say that. That would be going above and beyond what scripture teaches us. Does God always heal today? No, I I don't think he does. And so for sure a day will come when in all of our lives there will be no more tears, no more decay, no more pain and no more sickness. Without doubt a day will come in our lives when we will gather in the heavenly realms and we will be running and seeing and breathing and thinking in glorious perfection. There will be no more pain, no more tears, no more decay, no more sickness in any of our midst. One day, a day will come when Jesus Christ will gather us to be with him and we will all be healed in the right sense. We will see him how he really is and we will see ourselves as the risen people that we are and we will be made without doubt fully well. But right now we don't live in that moment, do we? We don't live in the already. We live in what is often called theologically the already and the not yet. It's not fully in heaven. And so we have access to the kingdom of God, no doubt. But this isn't the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is going to be in the heavenly realms. That's why Jesus himself says, pray thy kingdom come. Well, why would he do that if it already has? Because he's saying, well, it hasn't fully, hey. It's going to be heaven where the kingdom of God fully arrives and you see it for what it really is. We live in between the already and the not yet. So when we are in the heavenly realms, will we be fully healed and perfected gloriously? Yes. But we're in the interim. We're in the middle of the already and the not yet. And what is clear then scripturally and experientially is, well, does God always heal then in that gap between the already and the not yet? No. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Well, why? Why is that the case? And am I not kidding myself that this is why this is so emotive? Why, Lord, do you do that? Why, when I saw that guy prayed for, was he healed? And when I'm praying for my dying friend, he's not. Why do you do that? So we back off and we just say, well, let's name it and claim it. Nope. Or we back off and say, let's not pray. Nope. But we have to, in the right sense, get comfortable, I think, with mystery. See, my friends, in a detailed sense, the reality is we don't know why. We don't know why God says, I'm going to heal you now, but not you. 
We don't know why God says, I'm going to heal you in this moment and I'm going to heal you in eight years' time. It's exactly what happened in Ananias. We don't know why God does those things. And that can be really hard as a Christian, can't it? Because if you're like me, I was trained as an engineer, so I like to have everything figured out. I want to work it out. I want formulas. I want to know if I do this, this will happen. And God on occasions, I think, particularly on things like this, puts us against the wall and says, you know what, son? You know what, daughter? Such things are too lofty for you to attain. They're the secret things. That's in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. He's making it clear there are some things that are revealed in Scripture and they're yours to treasure, but there are secret things that belong to the Lord and he's not going to tell you. That can be a challenge, but it's something as a Christian we need to understand and grasp and trust him in. John Calvin, when talking about predestination, which I know we're not talking about this morning, but I think this principle still is so helpful for us. He says this, so pastoral, and I think sovereign guys hear this, He says, the subject of predestination, which in itself is attended by considerable difficulty, is rendered very perplexed and hence perilous by human curiosity, which cannot be constrained from wandering into forbidden paths. Those secrets of his will, which he has seen fit to manifest, are revealed in his word, revealed insofar as he knew to be conducive to our interest and welfare. Therefore, let it be our first principle that to desire any other knowledge of predestination than that which is expounded by the word of God is no less infatuated than to walk where there is no path or to seek light in darkness. Listen to this. The best rule of sobriety is not in learning to follow wherever God leads, but also when he makes an end of teaching to cease from wishing to be wise. That is so helpful. And it's helpful not only, I think, to predestination. It's, helping, it's helpful to the question of, Lord, why do you not heal always today? And it seems to be that God in himself puts that one out to us and says, you know what? This is part of the secret things. It's a secret. It's not been revealed to you. And so, well, what about faith? Because in certain texts we read about faith, right? Faith that is apparently, or at least thought by some, to be really needed for healing to take place. And in some cases there does seem to be a part to play, biblically defined, in faith. There are numerous instances in the Bible where an individual's faith or their friend's faith or their relative's faith has brought about the healing in their lives. But you know what? Two things on that. Firstly, they haven't mustered up the faith by themselves. Faith is a gift from the Lord. And so that isn't something that they've just, it's a work where if only I could believe I would have been healed. No, hang on. Faith is a gift. But secondarily, there's also lots of instances in the Bible where people have no faith. The family has no faith. And guess what? They're healed too. Lazarus. It's tricky for him to have much faith. Everybody is weeping. They have no idea what's going to happen. Dorcas. They have no intention that he's going to go in there and somehow raise her. No faith. But God does. He steps in and moves. So does faith play a part biblically? Yes, I think on occasions it does. And we should cry out to God for faith as we plead him and pray to him on these things. But is it determinative? Is it the determinative factor? No. God's will is the determining factor. He's God. He is the one who ultimately holds all things. So does God heal today? Yes. Does he always heal today? No. Well, why? Well, in detail sense, we don't know exactly why. But you know what? In an overarching sense, we do know who. And that should fill us with loads of confidence. Although we don't know the details as to why he doesn't heal every single time, we do know who. We do know who he is. We do know that we have a wonderful Father and Saviour. 
one who sent his son at the fullness of time to go and die on a cross in our place. A son who spread his arms out on the cross and took on the wrath of God for us and then goes on to say, I will never leave you or forsake you. We have a faithful God who oversees our lives with great power and mercy, hems us in both behind and before. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. There is an emphasis in Scripture as how he will keep you and hold you and how he will never leave you nor forsake you. How he knows the very hairs on your head and how he guarantees in and through your life to use all things that you go through for your good and his glory. So do we don't know the details of why, but we do know who holds our time, who holds our steps. Who ultimately is in control? So am I advocating for a blind faith here? That therefore we should just shut up and put up? Don't ask any more questions about it? Just believe blindly? No, I'm advocating for a seeing faith. A faith that says, I know God. And if it is his will not to heal me, or not to heal my family member or friend, then I trust him. Because he is in control. And he is good. And he's worthy of all praise. And I can trust the one who died in my place, even through this sickness. I'm not advocating a blind faith. I'm advocating a seeing faith. And in response to seeing, I'm advocating a trusting faith. A faith that says, Lord, I trust you. Lord, why did Josh, our son, have to be born with a cleft palate and two holes in his heart? Why? And Lord, why, as we prayed for him, did you not heal him? I don't know. But as I look back, I see how the Lord used that for our good and his glory. And I trust him. And I think we all need to do that. For these are, in part, paths that come to an end. And the Lord then looks back at us and says, I love you, but these are now forbidden paths. Well, why, Lord, did you heal them and not me? Secret things. But trust me, I'm with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So where then does that leave us with regard to healing? One final question. What do we do with it then? So we know it's out there, we know healing can exist and can take place and sure we understand now that God doesn't heal all the time. So where does that leave us with regard to healing? Well, two things. Firstly, I think it leaves us praying for the sick. It does, passionately and in faith and in hope, praying for people that are unwell. Robin Bevere, one of the pastors at Covenant Life Church, says, now the point I'd like to make in all this is that when it comes to healing and praying for healing, we have a warrant to pray. We have every encouragement to pray. Jesus told us, be persistent in prayer. Ask, keep on asking. Seek, keep on seeking. Knock, keep on knocking. How much more will your heavenly Father give you good things? How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And so... Does God heal today? Yes. But is it God's will to heal in every single case today? No. No, I don't think we can say that. That's going too far. But what we do have is a warrant to pray. Amen to that. We have a warrant to pray for people, knowing that God in his grace does on some occasions Step into our world between the already and the not yet and miraculously heal people. And we want to be praying then towards that end in faith, in confidence that, Lord, I believe you can do this. I know you can do this. And, Lord, we trust you because ultimately you are sovereign and you are good. But I know that if it be your will, you could heal people in this moment. And we want to be praying that way. Honestly, folks, we want to be praying like Pentecostals. You know what I'm saying? We don't want to be name it and claim it, but we do want to have an urgency and a fervor and a passion. We don't want to be so reformed that we go, well, we can just trust the Lord. We don't need to pray. He's sovereign. No! 
He's sovereign over prayer too. And he says, pray. If any of you are sick, we'll call the elders and have them come and anoint you in oil and pray for you. Well, I thought we were just trusting him. Not according to James. He's saying, well, let's go pray. Because that's the only way God moves. It's all the way people are made better. It's all the way God heals. You know, one of the very encouraging things on this, I think, is one, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 9, where it says, to another gifts of healing by the one spirit. It's actually in the plural, and that's really hard to convert from Greek in the same way. So it actually reads, and to another, gifts of healings. You think, what, what's that? Because he doesn't say to another, gifts of prophecies or, you know, gifts of administrations. You think, what's he trying to say? What he's trying to get over, I think, is that this is a plurality of gifts. And so what I think he means by this is this. When you gather as a church, this is not a gift where, oh my gosh, thank goodness that person is here. They are the healer. They have the gift of healing. I think what he's saying is there are gifts of healings. And so as we gather as a church and where we pray for people and we lay hands for folk on the sick, there are gifts of healings that go to different people at different times in different ways. So we should all pray. Because there is a plurality on this. Just like prophecy in a sense. It can come on different people at different times. I think when we pray for the sick, God may, through you today, bring about the supernatural gift of healing on somebody else. And you may pray for people the rest of your life and never receive that ever again. Well, fine. But your portions onto some at different times when you pray and, oh my gosh, they got healed. I can't believe it. Yeah, that's what God does. So we should pray, I think, in the right sense with that type of fervour, being aware that God can heal, he does heal, and he gives gifts of healings at different times, not, I think, to specific people in any, any specific way, but at different times in specificity to different people in different circumstances. So we should pray. We need to be a praying people for the sick. It leaves us praying for the sick. But it also finally, I think, leaves the sick trusting in God and continuing in prayer. See, if you're prayed for and you're healed, then praise God for that. That's fantastic. And we want to rejoice with you and stand with you and apportion all glory to the Lord of what he's done. But if you're sick and you're not healed, we also want to come alongside you and help you and pray that God would give you the grace to trust him to be aware of who he is, to be aware of how he holds you and how he will always hold you. And in the midst of that trusting then, I want to encourage you then pastorally to keep praying. See, I think sometimes we can think that trusting God means that we don't pray. That's an unbiblical, unhelpful, reformed notion. We can trust God and pray. So Ananias, he's been bedridden for eight years in Acts chapter 9. He's been paralysed. What happens? Well, one of the important pieces of information in that verse is that he's a saint. So this is a man who's a Christian. He loves the Lord. You know what Christians do when they're sick and they're paralyzed in bed for eight years with a lot of time to think? You pray a lot. You're going to be praying at some point, Lord, would you heal me? Lord, did you make me well? What do you think the family would have been doing of this saint who are also saints, Christians? I submit to you they're probably going to be praying as well. What would you do? If that was your son or child or friend, you'd be saying, Lord, please meet them. Please heal them. Eight long years. Peter rocks up, prays with him, and in a moment he's healed. Was that because it was Peter? No, I don't think so. I think it's because it was God's timing for that individual. And I think what it should teach us then is even when we trust God, that doesn't mean we should stop praying. I think we have a biblical warrant to come back again and again and again and say, Lord, I'm just here again and I'm still trusting, but I'd love you to heal me. Maybe today's the day. Lord, would you help me? Would you give me grace? Would you make me whole? So I think where this leaves us in terms of healing is it leaves us praying for the sick and it leaves the sick trusting in God and continuing in prayer. If I can have the band to come back up, what I want us to do at the end of this meeting is I do want us to pray for the sick. And I know it's a bit longer than usual, but, well, that's just the way it is. I want to pray for the sick. And so I think it's appropriate that I want us to sing a song first and, and focus ourselves on the Lord. But if you're sick, just towards the end, I want to give some time to praying for you guys. Because I think the biblical premise is we trust the Lord, but 
we cry out to him that he may heal us, that he may come in supernatural means and, and heal our bodies and make us whole. And if we, even if we've done that before, a sickness that you've de- dealt with maybe for years, will we come back and ask again that he would give us grace for change? And if not grace for change, then grace to sustain us, that he would keep us and hold us fast in trust in the Lord. So let's stand together, my friends. Let's sing. And I'll come at the end.